0: Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. This is episode 12. Before I get started, I just want to say that recently I found out that my book, The Case for the One True God, is the num- it was the number two best-selling book on Amazon's list of recently released Christian apologetics and theology books. Uh, I was outselling Ravi Zacharias, Sean McDowell, and J. Warner Wallace. I mean that was absolutely incredible. I never thought that of out of all of the apologetic new releases, my book would be doing better than the new releases of these big time guys. I mean, Ravi Zacharias, Sean McDowell, Jay Warner Wallace. These are these are big name apologists, and I was outselling them. <laughs> I. I never in a million years would have imagined that my book would be outselling theirs. Uh, What an incredible blessing that God has given to me. Uh, I pray that God will use the case for the one true God for his glory and to further advance his kingdom. I pray that God uses it to bring skeptics and doubters into a relationship with himself and I also pray that Christians who read this book will be strengthened in their faith and equipped with the information needed to be a more effective witness for the gospel. That's why I wrote the book, and I hope that, uh, I, I hope that it achieves its goal. Uh, uh, the, the book is called The Case for the One True God, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Historical Case for the God of Christianity. You can get this book in both paperback and Kindle format on Amazon.com. Just go to Just go to Amazon.com and type Evan Minton into the search bar, and you'll see it along with all of the other books I've published. You can also publish the You can also buy the Case for the One True God uh, by going to the Cerebral Faith Facebook page and going to the shop section. So pick up that book. And uh, all you guys out there in podcast land, and hopefully uh, we can get it to the number one spot. Um, Also, do share this podcast with anyone you know. Donate to this podcast at anchor.fm slash evan-minton. And uh, if you buy the book... The Case for the One True God, you read it, you enjoy it, please leave a review and share it to your Facebook and Twitter account so that even more people will know that it exists. I want people to come to Christ through the ministry of Cerebral Faith, and so sharing my blog posts, sharing my podcast episodes, and talking about my books with your friends and family, all of this will help me make an impact for Jesus Christ. Okay, enough of that, so... Today I will be reading my paper, the soteriological case for Molinism. I wrote this paper a while back and published it on the Cerebral Faith website. Like the case for, uh, like the case for mere Molinism, which I read in the episode before last. This is a pretty long paper, that's why I made it in available in PDF format. Now, if you're wondering why I would read a paper aloud on a podcast, there are a couple of reasons. One, it's not unusual for people to read papers aloud in front of an audience. The entire Evangelical Theological Society conference consisted of theologians and apologists reading their papers aloud. Uh, In this case, instead of reading a paper aloud in front of an audience behind a podium, I'll be reading it on a podcast. Two, some people either hate reading or they have a, some disorder that makes it difficult for them to read, such as dyslexia. Or maybe they uh, have failing vision. Um, in fact, th- th- these are the reasons I started a podcast to begin with. If you either don't want to read, you hate to read, you're unable to read, you don't have time to read, don't worry, I'll do it for you. Now, let's get started so that we don't go over time in 3, 2... 1. The Soteriological Case for Molinism Abstract In this paper, I plan on making the case for Molinism from a different perspective than in my previous paper, The Case for Mere Molinism, which featured three pillars which came from the Bible and which only Molinism could best make sense of. In this paper, I will argue that there are six soteriological facts taught in the Bible and that only Molinism can adequately explain all six of the biblical facts. In this paper, I will first explain what Molinism is, then I will list the six soteriological facts and scriptural passages that establish them as true. I'll then go on to eliminate the non-Molinist attempts as being inadequate in explanatory scope, leaving Molinism as the only remaining option, and therefore the one the Christian ought to embrace. What is Molinism? Molinism is the basic theology formulated by Jesuit theologian Luis de Molina. Molina taught that God's knowledge can be divided into three logical moments, natural, middle, and free. God's natural knowledge is his knowledge of everything that could happen in any given circumstance. It's his knowledge of all of the free choices any creature could make in any given circumstance. It also is his knowledge of all necessary truths, such as 1 plus 1 equals 2. God's middle knowledge is his knowledge of everything that would happen. ...happen in any given circumstance. It's his knowledge of what any free creature... ...would freely choose in any given circumstance. For example, God knows... ...if Evan Minton were given $2,000 worth of Kindle gift cards... ...he would freely choose to download all of the books... ...on his Goodreads to read list. Or, if Bob went to Tatsuki's Japanese restaurant... ...he would freely choose to order sushi. God had these two logical moments of knowledge logically prior to his decision to create any world. Logically prior to his decision to create the universe, God knew everything that could happen in any given circumstance and everything that would happen in any given circumstance. God's free knowledge is his knowledge of everything that actually will happen. Free knowledge is synonymous with foreknowledge. This knowledge is the knowledge of all future events. The content of God's free knowledge is a result of the sovereign choice of God to actualize one of the worlds God knew about in his middle knowledge. On Molinism, everything happens because God decreed it, yet all of our choices are free. All Molinists agree on these facts. This is mere Molinism. Let's take the crucifixion of Jesus as an example. The Bible says, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 2.23 The crucifixion of Jesus was deliberately planned. His foreknowledge played a role in the matter but it was the wicked men who put Jesus to the cross. Molinists say that God knew that if Caiaphas was high priest in the first century, then he would freely condemn Jesus on grounds of blasphemy, and he would freely take him to Pilate for execution. He knew that if Pilate was prefect in the first century, then he would freely comply with the demands of the crowd, And God knew that if Judas was born in the time and place that he actually was, then he would become Jesus' disciple for a while and would freely choose to betray Jesus to the Sanhedrin. God knew how all of these people would behave if he placed them in the time and places that he did. God decreed the whole thing, but the libertarian freedom of the actors remained completely intact. Now, while Molinists agree on all of the above, they disagree on issues such as soteriology. For example... Some agree that Jesus died for all people, while others hold delimited limited atonement. Some Molinists, Luis de Molina included, think Romans 9 is teaching unconditional election, while others think that it teaches corporate election. I fall into the latter category. Regardless of these differences, we all agree that God has natural, middle, and free knowledge, and that God uses these logical moments in his decision of creation to ensure that his sovereign ends are accomplished without violating human freedom. Soteriological Molinism. In light of what I've just said, I will make some soteriological arguments that some Molinists will agree with and others will disagree with. Molinism is not a soteriological view, and I have just listed three biblical facts that all Molinists do affirm and, in fact, is the reason why they are Molinists. I wrote this in The Case for Mere Molinism. However, my argument in this paper is that Molinism, and only Molinism, can best account for the soteriological facts that I have exegeted from the scriptures. So even though Molinism isn't exegeted from the scriptures, it is the only system that I can find that can account for what is exegeted from the scriptures. The five facts below are 1. Total Depravity 2. Jesus died for all people. 3. God sends prevenient grace to all people. 4. Unconditional election. 5. Christ- true Christians can lose their salvation. and 6. True Christians will never lose their salvation. Let's look at each of these six biblical teachings. 1. Total Depravity The term total depravity makes it sound like people are as evil as they could possibly be, which obviously isn't true. The following quotation is taken from The Banner and is found in an article which is explaining the canons of Dort, especially canons 3 and 5, article 4. Quote, The result of the fall is total depravity or corruption. By this is meant that every part of man is rendered corrupt. The canons say that man became involved in blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, perverseness of judgment, became wicked, rebellious, obdurate in heart and will, and impure in his affection." There was no part of his nature that was not affected by sin. The word total must not be taken in the absolute sense as though man is completely depraved. Man is not as bad as he can be. Article 4, which we hope to consider more fully later in this series, speaks of glimmerings of natural light which remain in man since the fall. God does restrain the working of sin in the life of man on earth, and sinful man has a sense of right and wrong. His corruption is total in the sense that there is no part of his being that is pure and holy, and the good he does is done for God and his, and for his glory. End quote. Herman Hanko comments on this canon article, saying, In this quotation, Uh, In this quotation, the distinction is made between total depravity and absolute depravity. Total depravity means that man is depraved in every part of his being. But while he is depraved in every part of his being, at the same time there remain in every part of his being remnants of good. Absolute depravity means that every part of his being is wholly bad. This distinction, therefore, is intended precisely to, re- to leave room for some good which man is able to perform. And this good is precisely the good of accepting with his will the offer of the gospel. That is precisely what our canons do not mean by total depravity. End quote. Now that we've described what the doctrine of total depravity is, does the Bible teach it? The answer is yes. The Bible teaches that human, that humanity was created in the image of God. See Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 27 and Genesis 9:6 good and upright, but fell from its original sinless state through willful o- disobedience. See Genesis 3, leaving all of humanity under the sentence of divine condemnation, as Romans 3:23 says, "For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God and Romans Romans 6:23a says for the wages of sin is death and as Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 says as for you you were dead in your transgressions and and sins you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now as at, at work in those who are disobedient all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Romans chapter 3, verses 10-11 to says, As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. Scripture tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Jeremiah seventeen nine. Confer Genesis six five, Matthew nineteen seventeen, and Luke eleven thirteen. Indeed, human beings are spiritually dead in sins. Ephesians chapter two verses one to three, and Colossians two thirteen, and are slaves to sin. See Romans chapter six verses seventeen to twenty. The apostle Paul even says, "I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh." Romans 7.18 The fallen, sinful state of man even prevents a man from turning to God in repentance, without the aid of divine grace, which we'll discuss further below. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Later, Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. John six sixty five. Indeed, if God were to leave us to our own devices, none of us would even seek his face. Romans three eleven. Our wills are bound by our depravity. What Jesus said in John six forty four and John six sixty five is corroborated by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Romans. In Romans chapter eight, verses seven to eight, Paul wrote, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law nor can it do so those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please god emphasis mine this passage explicitly says that the mind governed by the flesh i.e. the sinful nature is in a state of hostility towards god Paul says that not only does it not submit to God's law, it is unable to do so. It's not just that the natural man chooses not to submit to God. The natural man doesn't even have the ability to do so. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The NLT renders it this way. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. The ESV renders it as... For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Much more can be said about this doctrine, but I think enough has been said uh, that we can say with confidence that total depravity is a biblical fact. 2. Jesus died for all people. As observed above, due to total depravity, no one can be saved unless God takes the initiative. The good news is that since God is love, 1 John 4.8, 1 John 4.16, His mercy is over all that He has made, Psalm chapter 145, verse 9. He even loves His enemies, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38-44. to God has, therefore, not left us to our own devices. He became a human being, see John chapter 1 verse 14, Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8, and died on the cross to take our punishment on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to endure it. Isaiah 53, 1 Peter 3, 18, 1 Corinthians fifteen three. God became a human being and took the punishment we deserved. He took it on himself so that he wouldn't have to unleash it on us. But who did Jesus die for? Calvinists insist that Jesus only died for a select few, the elect. As Calvinist theologian John Owens put it, quote, "And therefore, seeing he doth not intercede and pray for everyone, he did not die for everyone." End quote. But what does the Bible say? John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son." "...whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the only Son of God." Emphasis mine. The Greek word translated world is cosmos. K O S M O S. Strong's Greek Concordance defines cosmos as the world, universe, worldly affairs, the inhabitants of the world, adornment. The word was most often used to describe either the entire planet, the entire universe, or all of the people in the universe. John 3 16 18 tells us who God loves the world. For God so loved the world that Jesus became a man, John chapter 1 verse 14, Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8, and suffered a horrible death on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, so that if we believe in him, we will have eternal life. Who is a part of the world? Am I a part of the world? Are you a part of the world? Is Billy Graham a part of the world? Is Hitler a part of the world? What about Osama bin Laden? Was he a part of the world? Are all of the members of ISIS a part of the world? Is Richard Dawkins a part of the world? The answer is yes to all of those questions. Every human being is a part of the world. And therefore, not only does God love every human being, but he died for every human being. He died for the world. In one article, Jim Bochore responded to this argument with, quote, "My dog is a part of the world too. This chair that I'm sitting in is a, is a part of the world. Sin is a part of the world. Evan's simplistic argument is quite easily reduced to absurdity unless you think that Simba, the dog, is going to be redeemed." End quote. This response on the part of Bochore is ridiculous. Obviously, John 3 is not talking about inanimate objects or animals, but people in need of salvation. It is the sinners who are in the world that Jesus speaks of when he says, For God so loved the world. Jim Bosher's response is a silly misunderstanding at best, an intellectual dishonesty at worst. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 to 6 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Emphasis mine. The word translated all people in this passage is Antas. Anthropios. Antos is used in many places in the Bible. It's used in Romans 3.9, where Paul says Jews and Greeks are all antos under sin. And in Romans 3.23, where Paul says all antos have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who does want who does God want to be saved? All people. Confer Second Peter 3 9. Who did Jesus die for? All people. This is in direct contradiction to the L in the Calvinist's tulip, limited atonement, that says that Jesus only died for a select few. Let's look at a few more verses that clearly teach that Jesus died for the entirety of the human race. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2.2 2. But we do see Jesus, who was made l- lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2.9 The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4.14, Confer John 4.42 That is why we strive, we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. 1 Timothy 4.10 And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 2 Corinthians 5.5 Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John 6.51 Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people Romans 5:18. And the Bible repeats over and over and over again who's G- who Jesus's death was intended for. The world, the whole world, all people, everyone, all. I don't know how the authors of cr- of scripture could have made it I don't know how the authors of the scriptures could have made the point any more clear. Yet Calvinists continue to insist that Jesus only died for the elect. Why? Space does not permit a thorough look into all of the various reasons various Calvinists have given for why these verses don't mean what they seem to mean, but I feel that this paper would be incomplete without examining at least a few of them. Objection 1. All people only means all kinds of people. Calvinists argue that what these passages mean when it says that Jesus died for all people is that Jesus died for all types or all kinds of people. By that, they mean that some people within every group on the planet, Jesus died for some Israelites, some Americans, some Mexicans, some Japanese, etc., in every group of people in the world. there are some. In every group of people in the world, there are some who are elect... And it is these who Jesus died for, argues the Calvinist. These are the all-people. It would seem obviously ad hoc to make such a suggestion, unless someone gave a good reason for why this alternative interpretation should be preferred. One attempt to do this is to point to passages where it says Jesus died for Christians. Like Matthew one twenty one, for example, in which the context is the annunciation of Jesus' birth. Gabriel says to Joseph, "...she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." Other examples include John chapter ten verses eleven to sixteen, where Jesus says that He will lay down His life for the, for His sheep, and Mark ten forty five, where Jesus says, "For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many." I've had Calvinists point me to Matthew one twenty one and say, "See, it says His people, not everyone. Jesus didn't come to save everyone." I've had Calvinists point me to John chapter ten verses eleven to sixteen and say Jesus clearly said he laid down his life for the sheep, not the goats. And so, if we're to let scripture interpret scripture, these Calvinists argue, we see that in light of Matthew two, uh, Matthew one twenty-one, John ten eleven to sixteen, and Mark ten forty-five, that Jesus only died for those whom would be uh, who would be Christians. What is the problem with this argument? The problem with these, and virtually every other proof text for limited atonement that I've encountered, is that they're completely compatible with the view that, G- that Christ died for all humankind. Think about it. If Jesus died for literally every human being, whoever was, is, or will be, wouldn't that include the elect? Wouldn't that include his people? Wouldn't that include the church? Wouldn't that include the goats? Moreover, would the entirety of humankind not be many people? The Son of man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All of humanity is many, many people. That's certainly not a few. It this If Jesus died for everyone, then that includes believer and non-believer alike, obviously. For the Calvinist theologian to take scriptures which state that Jesus died for a particular group of people, his sheep, the church, etc., and conclude based on those texts that Jesus did not die for all, is fallacious. In Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now, uh, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. In this verse, Paul didn't say that Jesus died for everybody or even other Christians. Paul said Jesus loved him and died for him. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If a passage only mentions a specific group of people, and this must mean that Jesus only died for that specific group of people, then Galatians 2.20 must be saying that Jesus only died for Paul. The Calvinist's reasoning is reduced to absurdity. Objection 2. The Double Payment Argument Classically formulated by John Owen, the double payment argument is that if, if God died for all people, yet sends some people to hell, then that means that their sins were paid for twice, once in hell and once by Christ on the cross. This, Owen argued, entails that God has acted unjustly, because God has punished sin more than the sin d- uh, deserved. When Jesus died, the blood of Christ was not automatically applied to everyone whom it was intended for. If that were the case, then even if Christ only died for the elect, the elect would be born forgiven. They would literally come into the world already saved. After all, Christ died for us long before we were even born. If all that needs to happen for our sins to be paid for is for Christ to die then all of the elect come into the world already saved. They're already forgiven. They're just waiting to be regenerated and sanctified. That's all. To ask if Christ died for all, why aren't all sins paid for, is like asking if everyone is given a bar of soap, why isn't everyone clean? Because the blood of Christ, like soap, must be applied if it's to make a difference in our eternity. You can have soap offered to you, but if that soap is left unapplied, you're not coming clean. If the blood of Christ is not applied by faith, we're not coming clean. Acts chapter 16 verses 29 to 31 said, The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Given that the atonement isn't applied to a person until that person receives Christ as their personal Lord and Savior by faith, then the double payment argument is fallacious. Suppose this person never receives Christ by faith, then the blood is never applied. The person goes to hell and pays for his sins. Christ will only be registered as a person's substitute if they have faith in him. In one sense, then, the atonement is limited. It's limited in the actual application. But it's not limited in the potential application. That is to say, it's only applied to the elect. But it could be applied to everyone, if everyone would just turn to God. If it isn't actually applied then the debt isn't paid. The person who goes to s- to hell has their sins paid for once. Objection 3. The Jesus-didn't-pray-for-the-whole-world argument. Tony Lee Ross Jr. of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Bl- Blog brought this argument up in our 2015 debate on free will. His argument was that in John 17, 9, Jesus says... I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus says he's not praying for the world, but only those the Father has given him. Ross argued that if Jesus wanted everyone saved, he would have prayed for the world, but he didn't, which suggests he only cares about the elect. I don't think this is any more successful than the previous objections were. The fact that Jesus says he's not praying for the world in John 17 9 doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't desire the salvation of the world. For one thing, one of the most basic rules in biblical hermeneutics is to interpret unclear passages of scripture in light of the clear. We've seen over and over and over and over again that the Bible teaches that God loves THE WORLD. John 3.16 This love for the world is why he is not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 And that explains why Jesus became incarnate and died for the sins of the world. John 3.16 1 John 4.14 John 4.42 The whole world. 1 John 2.2 2. Everyone, Hebrews 2.9, which means all people, First Timothy 2.6. Passage after passage after passage expresses God's universal love for all, God's universal salvific will, and God's universal provision in the atonement. Therefore, however we interpret John 17, 9, we should interpret it in light of the boatload of passages that affirm that, yes, God does want the world saved. But how should we interpret this passage? I think that one way to look at it is, to, is that Jesus isn't saying anything about whom he wants saved, but he's saying that he's not currently praying for the world. Jesus said, "'I am not praying for the world.'" In the present tense. Not, I have not, or I will not, or I have never and will never pray for the world. We could look at this passage as Jesus saying that he isn't praying for the world at that moment. For all we know, Jesus might have prayed for the whole world's salvation on different occasions. Occasions we didn't even know about. After all, scripture doesn't record every single word that has ever come out of Jesus' mouth. For example, from the time he was 2 to 33. He... Here, lately, I I've been praying for one specific atheist I've interacted over email. I don't pray for the souls of the salvation of souls of all people. I, I do in in general, does that mean that I don't want all people saved? No, of course not. My lack of praying for the world no more indicates that I don't want everyone saved than it does Jesus. Moreover, we need to look at the context of the verse. When studying chapter 17, I noticed something interesting. Jesus isn't praying for the world in verse 9, but neither is he praying for the world of the elect. He's only praying for the 12 disciples, at least in this portion of the text where this Calvinist proof text is found. Jesus does pray for all believers in John 17, but he doesn't do that until we get to verse 20. From verses 1 to 19, he's only praying for the 12 disciples from verse 20 and beyond he's praying for all believers should should we conclude then that jesus didn't want all believers to be saved since he's not praying for them in verses 1 to 19 of course not much more could be said regarding the uh, regarding unlimited atonement the first s in the roses acronym much ink could and indeed has been spilled between arminians and calvinists who debate this issue for those wanting to do more study uh, into the objections calvinists offer against unlimited atonement check out the following blog posts of mine five biblical texts that calvinists can't five biblical texts that calvinists can't wiggle out of let the Wiggling Commence, a response to Kevin Corder. Scripture in the Hands of a Wiggly Calvinist, a response to Tony Lee Ross Jr. Another Unsuccessful Wiggle, a second response to Kevin Corder. All Wiggled Out, a second response to, <clears throat> to Tony Lee Ross Jr. Addressing Calvinist Responses to 2 Peter 3, nine. You can f- find the links to these blog posts in the the actual paper that I'm reading from in this podcast episode. And the link to the paper will be in the show notes of this podcast episode. Three, God sends prevenient grace to all people. Prevenient grace is what God does to address the problem of one above. As already stated, human beings are fundamentally corrupt At heart, we cannot do, say, think, or will anything good in and of ourselves. We cannot do anything to gain God's favor, and it's impossible for us to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What did he mean by draw? Well, this is where God's grace comes in. Arminians and Molinists both believe that God sends grace to all humankind in order to enable them and to persuade them to repent and believe the gospel. There are two facets of this grace. It is both enabling and it is persuasive. Andrew Dragos explains that, quote, Broadly speaking, this is the grace that goes before, the grace which precedes human action and reflects God's heart for his creation. It testifies to God's being the initiator of any relationship with him and reveals him as one who pursues us. This means the Spirit of God works not just to restore certain faculties of humanity or to limit human sin, but ultimately directs people to the work of Christ." End quote. This is in contrast to the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace. Pastor John Piper describes irresistible grace as follows quote, The doctrine of irresistible grace means that the Holy Spirit, whenever he chooses, can overcome all resistance and make his influence irresistible. The doctrine of irresistible grace means that God is sovereign and can conquer all resistance when he wills. When God undertakes to fulfill his sovereign purpose, no one can successfully resist him. End quote. Is prevenient grace synergistic or monergistic? While many hold, while many who hold to prevenient grace are self-proclaimed synergists, I do not think that resistible grace is inherently synergistic. Whether a, soteri- whether a soteriological view is monergistic or synergistic really depends on how one defines those terms. Monergism comes from two Greek words, mono which means one, and erg, which means work. Synergism, by contrast, comes from the two Greek words syn, syn, meaning together, and erg. So monergism means that only one entity is at work, while synergism means that two entities are at work. Now, philosopher Kenneth Keithley puts forth an illustration in his book, Salvation and Sovereignty, a Molinist approach, which involves an ambulance. Keithley writes, Imagine waking up to find that you are being transported by an ambulance to the emergency room. It is clearly evident that your condition requires serious medical help. If you do nothing, you will be delivered to the hospital. However, for what for whatever reason you demand to be let out the driver will comply he may express regret and give warnings but he will still let you go you will you receive no credit for being taken to the hospital but you incur the blame for refusing the service of the ambulance End quote. Keithley's point here is that in our salvation the holy spirit is the only one at work so grace is monergistic but it isn't irresistible like the calvinists argue We can resist God's grace until the day we die and therefore end up eternally damned. We have free will and can choose whether to resist or not resist. If we resist, we will remain unsaved. If we choose not to resist, we will be saved. God does everything in saving us. You don't do anything to get saved, but you can do something to keep yourself from being saved, namely resist the Holy Spirit. Any contribution you give is harmful. It's the lack of contribution that is required to receive the medical aid. This is the way it is with salvation. Any contribution you give is harmful. It's the lack of contribution or works and submission that, or faith that is required. Does Scripture teach prevenient slash resistible grace, though? Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But, fortunately for mankind, Jesus also said, And I, when I am lifted up up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John 12.32 Jesus sends prevenient slash resistible grace to every single human being so that they can be saved because they are so precious to him. If the drawing of Jesus were irresistible, then universalism would result. However, we know from many passages of Scripture that not all people will be saved. See Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Therefore, universalism is false. Since universalism is false, the drawing of Jesus Christ cannot be irresistible, but resistible. John 1, the very first chapter of John's Gospel, and the most glaring statement affirming Jesus' divinity, states in verse 7 that that John the Baptist uh, says about John the Baptist, that he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. And in verse 9, the Bible says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. What type of light is being given to everyone? John Wesley said that this light that John 1 refers to, the light which is given to all men, is prevenient grace. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen had just been dragged in front of the Sanhedrin on the accusation that he repudiated the law of Moses and had blasphemed God. Stephen then went through a very long recap of biblical history. At the end of his speech, he rebuked the religious leader, saying, You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51 Stephen says outright that the, le- that the religious leaders were resisting the Holy Spirit. Stephen then, Stephen says outright that the l- religious leaders were resisting the Holy Spirit. This is not compatible with the doctrine of irresistible grace. According to irresistible grace, the Holy Spirit cannot be resisted. As James White put it, quote, The doctrine of irresistible grace is easily understood. It is when God chooses to move in the lives of his elect and bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life. No power in heaven or on earth can stop him from doing so. End quote. And as John Piper said, there, non-Christians, resistance to the cross has been overcome because the call for God broke through their spiritual blindness and granted them to see it as wisdom and power. This is what we mean by irresistible grace, End quote. No power can stop God's grace from bringing us sinner spiritual life, James White says. No power on earth, he says. Piper said our resistance to the cross is overcome because God breaks through our spiritual blindness. But Stephen said explicitly that the religious leaders were resisting the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. How could the Sanhedrin resist that which is irresistible? In John 16.18, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the to, quote, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, end quote. Again, who is a part of the world? Me Me and you and every person you've ever met and will meet. If it's a human being and they're on this planet, they're a person the Holy Spirit has come to convict. Obviously, this this convicting isn't an irresistible convicting, or else, again, everyone would fall to their knees and ask Christ to forgive them. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This passage says that God's grace has appeared to all men. Not some men, not elect men, but all men. Now, if this grace which appeared to all men were an irresistible grace, then all men would be saved. That's universalism, but Matthew chapter seven verses thirteen to fourteen, Matthew chapter twenty five verses thirty one to forty six, second Thessalonians chapter two verses eight to nine, and Revelation twenty one eight give us reason to believe that universalism is false. While God wants all people to be saved, not all will be saved. Therefore, the grace of God that appeared to all men must be a resistible grace. Jesus laments in Matthew 22.37, "'Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you! How often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing!' This verse and its parallel in Luke's Gospel clearly state that Jesus wanted to save Jerusalem, but that they were not saved because they were not willing. This also hints at the, at the resistibility of God's grace. Such lamenting over the non-salvation of anyone on God's part doesn't make any sense if God's grace is irresistible. If the Calvinist view is correct, if Jesus wanted these people saved, all he would have to do is zap them with the irresistible grace and they would be saved. But here it seems that the people of Jerusalem have a choice as to whether they accept Christ or not. Even though Jesus wanted these people saved, he wanted to gather them together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. The only reason Jesus didn't get what he wanted was of, was that of a free decision on Jerusalem's part. Biblical fact 4: unconditional election. Unconditional election is the teaching that, before God created the world, He chose to save some people according to His own purposes and apart from any conditions related to those persons. God elects and predestines some individuals to salvation and others to damnation. Now, in light of all that I've said about God loving all people, Jesus dying for the world, and sending God's, and sending grace to all the world's inhabitants— that I include this as a soteriological fact will strike Arminian and Calvinist alike as bizarre. However, while I agree that there is a prima facie contradiction between the Arminian, between the Arminian tenets of my soteriology with this Calvinistic tenet, later in this paper I will argue that Molinism resolves the apparent conflict. The contradiction only exists on the surface. It's more of a paradox, an apparent contradiction, rather than a real one. For now, let's look at whether the doctrine is biblically supported. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Matthew 11.27 All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. John 6.37 For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be called the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. When the Gentiles heard this, the preaching of Paul, which was recorded in the preceding verses, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of god's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his of his will Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 to 12. These texts are some of the passages that teach predestination. Now, classical arminians interpret Ephesians 1 as teaching not individual election, but a corporate election. Corporate election can be understood by means of the following instruction, uh, illustration. There's a train station with two trains scheduled to go in opposite directions, one red train and one blue train. The destinations of both trains were predetermined and fixed prior to anyone arriving at the station. However, even though the destinations of the trains were predetermined, the destination of the individual passengers were not the passengers can freely choose which train they board. It is the trains that were predestined, not the individuals. Likewise, on corporate election, God has predestined two groups, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. You can choose whether you're inside the body of Christ or outside, but God has predetermined that the group of people who have faith in Christ will go to heaven, and the group of people that reject Christ is the group that goes to hell. However, he has not determined which individuals comprise each of the groups. I do think that election does have a corporate aspect to it. I think this is probably what Ephesians 1 is talking about, but I don't, have, I don't take a hard stance on that. The language of Ephesians 1 is ambiguous enough to support either individual election or corporate election. I definitely think that this is what Romans 9 is talking about. However, I don't think that corporate election is the whole story. The reason I think that is that some of the passages just don't seem to mesh well with a corporate understanding of election. Take Matthew 11.27, for example. In this verse, Jesus said that no one can know the Father except the Son and to whoever the Son chooses to reveal him. This sounds like the Son will reveal the Father to some individuals and not others. Acts 13.48 is another one. Here, Luke is describing the response to the apostles' preaching, and he says, quote, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, end quote. What a remarkable statement that is. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. As William Lane Craig comments in his Defenders class, quote, That can't plausibly be construed corporately. He is talking there about individual people who responded to the preaching of the gospel. As many as were ordained to eternal life Believed in the gospel. The verse here is in the past perfect of the word tasso in the Greek, which means to appoint or to designate or to set aside. It indicates that those whom God has set aside or appointed or designated to salvation, to eternal life, will be saved. The Arminian attempts to interpret this passage by saying what it means is that as many as were disposed to eternal life believed. So if you had the disposition that was right for eternal life, then you would believe. Therefore, it was of your own free will but i am not persuaded that that is a plausible interpretation of this passage let me give two reasons why i think that that is incorrect first as i say the form of the verb there is in the passive voice that indicates that god is the subject that is that is to say it is all those whom god has ordained, uh, had ordained to eternal life The use of the passive voice is indicative that God is the active subject of the verb. He is the one who has appointed or set aside certain people to eternal life. It is my conclusion that while Romans 9 teaches corporate election, and while Ephesians 1 may or may not be, the corporate election interpretation just won't work with Matthew 11.27 and Acts 13.48. Election is both a corporate and an individual aspect. Moreover, there is no apparent reason why some should be ordained to eternal life and others aren't. Biblical Fact 5. True Christians Can Lose Their Salvation Can someone, after getting saved, turn their back on Christ and go back to living a life of unrepentant sin? Could a true Christian apostatize? The Bible certainly seems to suggest so passages such as Hebrews chapter two verses one to three, Hebrews three twelve, Hebrews four fourteen, Hebrews chapter six verses four to six, Hebrews chapter ten, verses twenty-six to thirty one, Second Peter two, Second Peter three seventeen, Colossians chapter one verses twenty one to twenty three, Colossians two eight. And Galatians chapter five verses four to verses one to four and Romans eleven become unintelligible if apostasy was impossible. If apostasy is impossible, then the aforementioned passages warning against it, they're warning against something that could never occur. In that case, why are they in Scripture? If falling away is really impossible, why would the Holy Spirit repeatedly inspire the New Testament authors to guard against it? Calvinist attempts to make these passages say something other than what they appear to be saying aren't very convincing. For example, some try to make these warnings against nominal Christians. That is to say, those who affirm that Christianity is true, but they haven't entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. GotQuestions.org writes, quote... The Bible's warning against apostasy exists because there are two types of religious people, believers and unbelievers. In any church, there are those who truly know Christ, and there are those who are just going through the motions. Wearing the label Christian does not guarantee a change of heart. It is possible to hear the word and even agree with its truth without taking it to heart. It is possible to attend church, serve in a ministry, and call yourself a Christian and still be unsaved. Matthew chapter seven verses twenty one to twenty three. As the prophet said, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah chapter twenty nine verse thirteen. Confer mark seven six. Mark chapter seven verse six. God warns the pretender who sits in the pew and hears the Sunday. Uh, and here's the gospel, Sunday after Sunday, that he is playing with fire. Eventually, a pretender will apostatize. He will fall away from the faith he once professed if he does not repent. Like the tares among the wheat, his true nature will be manifest. End quote. While I certainly don't dispute that there are people like got questions described above, I mean, hello, I used to be one of them. I don't find this explanation very plausible. For w- one reason, is simply a logical one. Since these people aren't saved, they really aren't worse off if they stop believing Christianity is true. They're on their way to hell either way. Wouldn't it be better to exhort pretenders to actually make a commitment to say something like James does in James 2.19 about even the demons believing that God exists? But more fundamentally, the way some of these warning, uh, the, the way some of these warning passages are worded makes me doubt that they're aimed at the nominal Christian. Just take Hebrews chapter six verses four to six, for example. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. For one thing, there's the fact that the writer says that once they fall away, it is, quote, impossible to bring them back to repentance. If these people weren't truly saved to begin with, then it makes no sense to say that they can be brought back to repentance. Repentance. If they truly weren't saved, then they never really repented in the first place. There can't be a second repentance unless there is a first repentance. Moreover, it says that these people, quote, have once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. How can a nominal Christian or a false convert be the type of person being described here? Are false converts spiritually enlightened? Have false converts tasted the heavenly gift? If Hebrews 6 is talking about false converts, then why does it say that they've shared in the Holy Spirit? A person who has been enlightened spiritually, has tasted the heavenly gift, and has shared in the Holy Spirit certainly sounds like a genuinely born-again Christian to me. This does not at all sound like the type of person, this does not at all sound like a nominal Christian. If I were to describe a nominal Christian, I would not use these terms. Biblical Fact 6. True Christians will never lose their salvation. So once again, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself. Stay with me. It, it, I, it will all make sense in good time. While the Bible warns against apostasy in a variety of places, there are also passages that seem to suggest that true Christians will persevere in their faith. One passage that comes to mind is John chapter 10, verses 27-29. to 29. In this passage Jesus says, "My sheep hear my voice; I know them, and they follow me; I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish; no one can pluck them from my hand; the, my Father who has given them to me is greater than them all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand." romans chapter eight verses thirty eight to thirty nine says, Jude, verses 24-25 to 25 says, To Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Ephesians 1.13 says, Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The word translated into sealed indicates full security. The believer has full security for their inheritance when they receive the Holy Spirit. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to a, to us, they would have brought pizza on their way back. <laughs> no, okay, sorry. <laughs> First John two nineteen says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Philippians one six says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. John chapter six verses thirty nine to forty says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Which theological system can account for these six facts? Now that we've gathered the soteriological data to be explained, it is now time to figure out which theological system can best account for them all. If any theological system can explain more of the biblical facts than another, then it should be preferred. The one with the most explanatory scope is the one we should hold. Simple Foreknowledge Arminianism? Arminianism is the soteriology that I held for most of my life for uh, a lot of the reasons described above. Arminians affirm that humans have libertarian free will, that God loves all people and died on the cross for all people to be saved, and that God sends prevenient grace to all people to enable and persuade them to repent. Arminianism also teaches that true Christians can apostatize of their own, of their own libertarian free will. As such, classic Arminianism—and here I mean classical Arminianism—can account for the for soteriological facts one, two, three, and five. One, two, three, and five. However, when encountering the biblical passages supporting four and six, I found myself experiencing cognitive dissonance. Arminians reject unconditional election and individual predestination, and they also reject the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Arminians favor instead the view that God elects individual on on the condition of foreseen faith, or corporate election. Uh, Some Arminians say that that God elects individuals on the condition of foreseen faith. He foresees who will have faith, and he elects those people accordingly. In their defense, there does appear to be a biblical basis for this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-2 to two speaks of, quote, "...elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit." for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood." However, as we saw above, there are also passages that speak of predestination in stronger terms, such as Matthew 11:17 and Acts 13:48. The Son chooses whom he will, the Son chooses whom he will reveal the Father to, and people are are ordained to eternal life. Of all non-Molinist views, classical Arminianism can account for the most, the largest amount of the soteriological data, and it has the fewest difficulties. This is why I held to this system for so long, but it cannot account for all of what the Bible teaches on the doctrine of salvation. Calvinism? Calvinism is even worse than Arminianism. While, Arminian is, while Arminianism fits well with four of the six soteriological facts, Calvinism only fits well with three. Total depravity, unconditional election, and perseverance of the saints are right at home in the Calvinist system. But Calvinists have to deny that Jesus died for all people and that God's grace can be freely resisted. That's what the L and the I in TULIP stands, stand for limited atonement i.e. jesus did not die for all and irresistible grace i.e. god sends grace to only those uh, to o- to only the elect and this grace cannot be resisted but we've seen above that the bible strongly contradicts this <laughs> while i could be a 3-point calvinist i cannot be a 5-pointer pelagianism in a guest post on cerebralfaith.blogspot.com, Martin Glenn explains that, quote, "...Pelagius was a 5th century monk and exegete who theologically articulated a common or aristocratic lay belief that was common in Rome at the time. The position was primarily ascetic, meaning that it focused on obtaining virtue, the avoidance of vices, and the abandonment of comfort." Therefore, it isn't a wonder that the principal emphasis of Pelagius was to inspire people to do good. He was practical in focus, valuing the utility of a doctrine over consistency with orthodoxy. Unsurprisingly, Pelagius ended up abandoning certain important Christian truths to succeed. Pelagius ended up butting heads with the great theologian Augustine of Hippo. Though he historically vanishes before the matter is fully settled, Pelagius' t- teachings were condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 343 AD. Pelasians believe that humans are born morally neutral or good. Sin is something that we have to learn. As such, it is up to the person to choose the good and avoid what is evil. Semi-Pelasians agree on this point, though sometimes they will admit to some damage or disability that exists in our souls, hindering the good. In other words, they often do believe in a sin nature, but still they believe we are born capable of doing good. End quote. Pelagianism denies total depravity, which is the first soteriological fact this paper unpacked. Molinism? Molinism can account for all six of the soteriological facts. As a Molinist, I hold that God wants all people to be saved, so he became a human and died on the cross to atone for the sins of every person in the world. However, due to our totally depraved nature, we cannot repent on our own. We need God to enable us and draw us to repentance. We can exercise our libertarian free will to resist this drawing, and even after we get saved, we can, we can freely choose to abandon Christ. These are soteriological facts one, two, three, and 5. But what about unconditional election and perseverance of the saints? Facts 4 and 6. How does this work? If God really loves all people and wants all people saved, then how can he actively decree that some individuals go to heaven and others go to hell? Moreover, how can it be the case that you can lose your salvation, and yet your salvation is eternally secure? Aren't these clear-cut contradictions? Middle Knowledge Predestination This is where Molinism comes to the rescue. God, in his Middle Knowledge, knew if Bob were in Circumstance X, he would freely choose to do Action A instead of Action Non-A. So, in order to get Bob to freely choose Action A, all God has to do is actualize a world where Circumstance X obtains, and as a result, Bob chooses Action A instead of Action Non-A. God's purpose, the actualization of Bob choosing Action A, is realized, but God did not have to force or causally determine Bob— God achieved his purpose through his omniscience rather than his omnipotence. In the above scenario, you could let action A stand for choosing to accept Christ's offer of redemption. God elects individuals by means of creating them in circumstances where God knows they would freely choose him if put if he put them in those circumstances. God chose which possible world he wanted to actualize from eternity past. So, it could be said that God predestined Bob. God predestined Bob, since he chose, from the foundations of the world, to create a world where Bob is in circumstance X, and so Bob chooses A. It's a free decision, because God didn't decree the proposition if Bob were in circumstance X, he would freely choose A instead of non-A, The counterfactuals of creaturely freedom that exist in God's middle knowledge are contingent facts. This means that different counterfactuals could have existed in God's mind than the ones that actually do. If they did, then God would know different counterfactuals of creaturely freedom from eternity past. This means that Bob's action is truly free. Bob could have chosen non-A instead of A. But if Bob had chosen non-A, then God's middle knowledge would not have contained the proposition, if Bob were in circumstance X, he would freely choose A instead of non-A. No, if Bob had made a different choice in that circumstance, then logically prior to God's creative decree, God would have known instead, if Bob were in circumstance X, he would freely choose non-A over A all god did was act on his knowledge of what bob would freely would freely do bob could have chosen differently it's just that bob it's just that god knew bob would not have chosen differently this is what this is why william lane craig said that on molinism quote it is up to god whether we find ourselves in a world in which we are predestined it is up to us whether we are predestined in the world in which we find ourselves, quote. On Molinism, we can consistently hold that God foreordained our salvation even before he created the universe, and yet we still came to Christ of our own free will, choosing not to resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. Predestination and libertarian free will are not incompatible. OBJECTION! Why doesn't God use his middle knowledge to elect everyone? However, while libertarian free will and predestination are compatible on the Molinist view, the next question that is bound to arise is, if God can get people to do things by placing them in the right circumstances, then why doesn't he do this with all people, so that all people can be saved? William Lane Craig explains that, quote, it may well be the case that although there are logically possible worlds of universal salvation, that none of these worlds is actually feasible for God, it is impossible for him to actualize one of them because if he tried, the creatures or the persons in them could would go wrong in at least some of them, and at least some of them would freely reject him and be damned of their own free will End quote. Just because a world is logically possible, that doesn't mean that it's feasible for God to create. What if a person, we'll call him Sam, would not, under any circumstance, choose a particular thing? Call it A. In that case, a world where Sam chooses A freely is infeasible for God to actualize, because God knows Sam would never choose A in any circumstance. Or, what if Sam would choose A in a certain circumstance, but he would not choose A in a different circumstance? In that case, a world where Sam chooses A freely in the latter circumstance is infeasible for God to create, although a world where Sam chooses A in some other circumstance is perfectly feasible. Even though, it's quite lo- even though it's logically possible for there to be a world where Sam freely chooses A, it may be infeasible because that is not the direction Sam exercises his will. In the case of salvation, and in the case where far more free agents are interacting with one another, it may very well be the case that many of the circumstances God knows would be adequate to extract a free response from different individuals are non-compossible. That is to say, they can't all be cobbled together in a single world. A world where Sam chooses A in circumstance T is quite feasible. A world where Bob chooses A in the same world where Sam chooses A in circumstance T is infeasible. For if circumstance T comes about, Sam will choose A, but Bob will refrain from choosing A. If God actualizes circumstance S, Bob will choose A, but Sam will choose B. But what if God wants Bob to choose A and for Sam to choose A? If Circumstance T negates Bob choosing A and brings about Sam choosing A, then a world where both Bob and Sam make the same choice in Circumstance T is infeasible for God even though it's logically possible. Of course, if you take the free will factor out, and God steps in and makes either Bob or Sam choose what he wants, then the proposition Bob and Sam both chose A in circumstance T can come true. But it would still be the case that getting Bob and Sam to freely choose A in circumstance T is infeasible. So, it very well could be the case that any world God actualizes which contains people with free will, there would always be some saved and some damned. It very well could be the case that any world God actualizes that contains people with libertarian free will, there would always be some saved and some damned. God double predestines uh, simply by choosing to create a world of free creatures. God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 But it is infeasible for God to actualize such a world because in any feasible world there would be some who are not willing. Matthew 22.37 And God takes displeasure at that fact. See Ezekiel 18.23 Ezekiel 33.11 God, Had God created a different feasible world, Different individuals would be saved and different individuals would be damned. Indeed, God could have actualized a world where many of the damned are saved and many of the saved are damned. Uh, many, uh, the, many the, uh, what I mean is many of those who are damned in the actual world could be saved in a different feasible world and many of those who are saved in the actual world could be damned in a different feasible world. Luis de Molina would agree with me. As Kirk McGregor wrote, "...Molina viewed no possible individual as bad enough so that she or he would freely spurn God's grace in every conceivable set of circumstances, and no possible individual as good enough so that she or he would freely embrace God's grace in every conceivable set of circumstances." God's possession of middle knowledge, logically prior to his making any decisions about this world, including who would be saved or lost, provides the key to God's sovereign individual predestination. Thus, for any possible individual, God has the power to elect, save, that individual by creating her or him in certain freedom-preserving circumstances where God already knows she or he would freely Uh, would voluntarily embrace his grace. And God has the power to reprobate, condemn that individual by creating her or him in other freedom-preserving circumstances where God already knows she or he would voluntarily spurn his grace. And God has the power not to create that individual at all by actualizing other circumstances where the individual does not exist. This choice of circumstances, leading to salvation, condemnation, or non-existence, is unconditioned by anything about the individual, but depends solely on the sovereign will of God. End quote. Let me break away from the paper for a minute, and, and let me say that all of the sources that I'm citing here, they're in the footnotes of the paper. So if you want to see the sources, go to the paper and go to the notes section. Okay, back to the paper objection. What about First Peter chapter 1 verses 1 to two? Earlier in this paper, I said that Armenians believe in a sort of passive election, well, some Armenians, uh, whereby God looks down the corridors of time, sees who has faith, and then chooses who is elect based on that. They get this idea from First Peter chapter 1 verses one to two. But given that classical Arminianism cannot handle all of the data, it should be rejected. That said, how would First Peter chapter one verses one to two fit with a Molinist conception of election? I would say that election is based on, or better, is God's choice of which world to create. Uh, I would say that election is based on, or better, is God's choice of which world to create, given God's middle knowledge. Molina would say that for any possible individual p. God knows in his middle knowledge that there are some feasible worlds in which P would freely respond to God's prevenient grace and be saved. There are some feasible worlds in which P would freely reject God's prevenient grace and be lost. And there are some feasible worlds in which P would not exist. Assuming God chooses to create a world in the first category— that choice is his act of electing P. So election is conditioned on middle knowledge. But middle knowledge is a type of foreknowledge. It isn't knowledge of what you actually will do in the future. <clears throat> but it is, a type, it is a knowledge of what you would do in the future if in the future you found yourself in a particular circumstance. Perhaps this is why Peter chose to use that word foreknowledge of not what you actually were going to do, but foreknowledge of what you would do. <clears throat> what about the warning passages and the perseverance of the saints? <clears throat> How do I answer the question, Can a Christian lose their salvation? My answer to that question is, Yes, they can. But will they lose their salvation? My answer to that is no, they won't. The first question is a modal question, a question about what can and cannot happen. The next question is a de facto question. It is it, in fact, the case that any elect people will fall from grace and lose salvation? Will that happen? That is a de facto question. The de facto question is, Is this potential for apostasy something that will be actualized in the future? So there is a difference here. A difference between the modal question and the de facto question. My view is that Christians can become apostate. This is something that has the potential to come about, but I don't think it actually will come about. I don't think God would allow his elect to end up in situations where he knew that, if they ended up in the circumstances, they would freely reject Christ. God uses means to keep the elect from persevering. Christians have the ability to exercise their free will to turn their backs on the Lord, but God gives plenty of warning passages because he knew that before creating the universe that if he put plenty of warnings in scripture not to fall away then those who are truly saved would freely persevere in their faith it's like a mother who warns her child not to touch the top of a stove because he would he would be burned if he touched the stove as a result of the warning the child is fearful of being burned and chooses not to, to-, to touch the top of the stove and thus he never gets burned. I see these warning passages in Scripture in the exact same way. As a result, we can make sense of these passages telling believers to be careful not to turn their backs on Christ, while at the same time we can make sense of passages like First John 2.19, which essentially says that any, anybody who abandons the Christian faith never belonged to Christ in the first place. Conclusion I would like to end this uh, treatise on the contribution of Molinism to soteriology with a quote from Kenneth Keithley. So why do I embrace Molinism? Because, like the Calvinist, I am convinced the Bible teaches that one, God is sovereign and con- and His control is meticulous; two, man is incapable of contributing to his salvation or of even be- desiring to be saved; three, though. Cr- God, through Christ, is author, accomplisher, and completer of salvation, i.e., salvation is a work of grace from beginning to end. And four, individual election is unconditional. And five, the believer in Christ is secure. However, like the Arminian, I am also convinced the Bible teaches that six, God is not the author, origin, or cause of sin. That is, to, And to say that he is, is not just hyper-Calvinism, but blasphemy. 7. God genuinely desires the salvation of all humanity. 8. Christ genuinely died for all people. 9. God's grace is resistible. This means that regeneration does not precede conversion. And 10. Humans genuinely choose, are causal agents, and are responsible for the sin of rejecting Christ. This means that the alternative of accepting Christ was genuinely available to the unbeliever. There is only one position that coherently holds to all 10 affirmations, and that is Molish. End in science, one should go with the hypothesis that has the greatest explanatory scope of the data. I think the same should go for theology, the mother of all sciences. Molinism far exceeds Arminianism, Calvinism, Pelasianism in explanatory scope in explaining the soteriological data. I became a Molinist because of its exhaustive explanatory scope, not only in the area of free will and divine sovereignty, but also in the area of soteriology. I didn't become a Molinist because I thought it was an interesting philosophy. I certainly don't see Molinism as a philosophical grid being laid over scripture. While the Bible doesn't teach Molinism, it doesn't teach Molinism. It's the only theological system that can make sense of all that the Bible does teach. It is the most intellectually satisfying system that I have ever encountered. Unlike Arminians and Calvinists, I don't have to shoehorn any passage to fit my particular view. Molinism fits comfortably with all that the Bible has to say on the doctrine of salvation. Okay, I have once again gone way over the 60-minute limit. (laughs) I had no. Once again, I had no idea that it would take me this long to read that paper. But I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope that if you found yourself um, uh, unsatisfied with traditional Arminianism, or if you found yourself unsatisfied with traditional Calvinism, and I've hoped that you've f- found another view that can make sense of all of the biblical data, because if you're a Molinist. If you're a if you're a classical Arminianism or a classical Calvinist, you have to explain away the other guy's scriptures, but you don't have to do that if you're a Molinist. So thank you for listening, um, and please be sure if you if, if to donate to this podcast. It really helps uh, um, with research materials and better equipment, and it, it's really uh, donations really really are helpful. Uh, go to anchor.fm/evan-minton, and you'll see you'll see the big purple button there, giving you the option to donate. Thank you for listening, uh, and God bless you. See you next week.